Phone lines are open. I'm back from Korea. Let's do this. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, thanks for joining us and keeping me company as I go through my late afternoon jet lag moment here on the line of fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. So sorry we couldn't be with you live during the week. It was an unusual trip I took during the week to Korea. Really felt the Lord was in it and so eager to take your calls and be live with you today. 866-348-7884. I'll tell you a bit more about the trip in a moment, but let me just glorify the Lord for transforming my life almost five years ago now and helping me go to a completely healthy, no exceptions to the rule diet. Uh, the, the way I'm thriving physically is, is such a godsend and I'm so grateful to him. We left my house uh, about five o'clock on Sunday, my assistant Dylan and I, and then flew to Atlanta. Then we had a long layover, you know, four something hours in Atlanta and got on the plane to fly out around midnight but two flight attendants had misread their flight schedules. Never heard of this. Like Dylan said, maybe it's the first time a a, a captain was just honest, a a pilot giving us the information, what actually happened. Uh, So we had to wait for other flight attendants to arrive. It was about three in the morning before we took off. So instead of getting in there for something in the morning and my first meeting at 1030, which would have given me a couple hours to crash and it's 13 hour time differential there. Right? So, by the time we arrived, got to the hotels about 8.30. So that meant time to unpack, take a shower, literally lay down maybe 10 minutes, and then go and speak. Now with 13-hour time differential and 26 and a half hours travel. And uh, did the message, went out from there to lunch, then met with people privately, and then after that preached again with vigor, with strength, with grace, and people were astonished. And they said, how are you doing? And I said, God's grace and healthy lifestyle. So praise the Lord. And got in last night, oh, got home maybe about 12, 30, something like that in the morning. Uh, so been home, what, like 15 hours, got a good night's sleep. Got family in town for the big graduation tonight. Our granddaughter, Eliana, first of our grandkids to graduate high school. Yeah. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. That is the number to call. Believe it or not, we have a line open. Great time to call in now. Very rare on a Friday. All right, we start in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Aaron, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Um, I just wanted to get your uh, scholarly opinion on uh, David Roll and Tim Mahoney's uh, latest documentary where they uh, try to present the case that the proto-Sinaitic language is uh, possibly a a form of early Hebrew. I want to see what your take was on that. Yeah, so I, I didn't get to see the movie, but they're building on the work of one Semitic scholar in particular. And the argument would be that these would be inscriptions, the so-called Proto-Sinaitic inscriptions, that go back to the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. And everyone agrees that they are early pictographs, that they are the earliest form of the language before the script gets more fixed in its, in its Phoenician form 
and then comes into Hebrew from there, so we know it as, as Paleo-Hebrew, so the old Hebrew. By the way, people think Paleo-Hebrew is a language. It's just a form of the script. It's, it's all that is the old form of the script. Uh, so the, the Proto-Sinaitic inscriptions have been notoriously difficult to translate and decipher. That's problem one. And then problem two is to trace their origin. So I, I am open to that possibility. In, in other words, it's a fascinating thesis, and the scholar behind it, who's written on it extensively, is a legitimate Semitic scholar. Now, it goes against the views of the majority of Semitic scholars, but it's not one of these loony internet theories that someone just baked up, and the folks involved with the Moses controversy really dug into it seriously. So I, I started to look into it a bit more, but... Uh, what it takes, Aaron, to be honest, is a really serious investment of time and energy as a Semitic specialist, really digging deep. And that's not something that I can do as a priority or, or to have the, the belief that I'm going to know better than some of the Semitic scholars looking at this. So I'm, I'm kind of watching to see reviews of the scholarship that's out there, uh, to, to watch the give and take and some of the, the critical interaction and then to try to look at that, see the ones that are really investing the time and energy. So it's a fascinating thesis, and it's not impossible. And it, it, it does have support from a recognized Semitic scholar, okay? So it's not one of these fantasies and just some Christians made some documentary on some, some crazy sensational internet stuff. But I, I, I don't know that any of us can in a decisive way say yay or nay based on the scant evidence that exists. Now, Aaron, did you see the movie yourself? Yeah, I have it. Uh, okay, what, what was, oh. as you watched it, uh, what, how compelling did things seem to you, just from whatever background you have? Uh, well, my background's mainly in computer science and math, so it's hard for me to say, but uh, whenever I watched it, I, I thought the most compelling evidence was when they follow the, the path that the, the oldest inscriptions are found in Egypt, and then the newer ones are found in uh, Canaan. So it kind of seems like the, you know, it, the language migrated around right, the same right, time right. that they placed the Exodus. So. Right, so that that's like the strongest piece to me. Right, so that that's the thing that's, that's uh, a strong case can be made for that's kind of recognized. In, in other words that you do have going from these proto-Sinaitic inscriptions then to what would be proto-Canaanite inscriptions. So Phoenician and Hebrew are both Canaanite dialects. Uh, Isaiah 19, Hebrew is spoken of as Sfat Kana'an, the language of Canaan. So that is true. You have them here in Egypt, and then you have them here in Canaan. So is it that the Israelites were in Egypt, and the Israelites came to Canaan? That, that would be an interesting theory. But beyond that, sir, I'm just going to kind of watch the discussion among scholars and see who can bring more compelling evidence. But it's, it's certainly worth looking into for sure. And then does that back up other claims about the historicity of the Exodus or the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch? Those are then secondary issues, but thank you for the call, Aaron. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go to Dave in Toledo, Ohio. Welcome to the line of fire. Well, thank you very much. I really love what you do. I listen to you a lot, pretty much every episode. I'm remodeling a house, so on Saturday I listen to five in a row. Oh, and, sweet. Uh, 
but I am going to call you out on something. Go for um, it, please. I will. <laughs> I've been waiting a while to talk to you about this. So I've been involved in the Vineyard for decades, had songs published through Vineyard Music, and traveled and spoke at conferences with them and all that. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to call you out on tongues, okay? And yeah. here's why. Um, and I, I've spoken in tongues. I've done it during worship, which I think is not biblical now. But um, So uh, basically, the Strong's definition for tongue in Acts 2 is the language or dialect used by a particular people distinct from that of other languages, okay? So it's a language that people spoke. There were 16 languages that came out of the disciples in Acts 2. None of them were just gibberish, okay? So in your opinion, I, I should use the word gibberish. I don't mean that. It's kind of demeaning. But I, just a funky language that nobody on the earth speaks. Let's, say, let's just say that. So... But well, what, what, let, think... let's remove let's remove funky and this way we can okay, this, this, okay. Nothing hey. uh, well uh, no uh, i know i know you i've heard you a lot say that you love speaking in tongues and it's blessed you in your prayers yeah, yeah. a lot and i anyway uh, prayer language let's just say that i'm sorry yeah. i shouldn't have said derogatory derogatory words that's kind of my personality anyway but anyway that's right that's right when did it become what it is today in the Bible, because I called you before with "Does God always heal?" and you said, "Are you basing it on your experience or what the Bible teaches?" Right. And although I've studied it further, I think that Jesus walked away from many sick people at the pool of Bethesda. But all that to say is, I think you're basing your theology on what tongues has become today, not on Scripture, but on your experience. And I did too, because I spoke in tongues a lot. Mm-hmm. But I just don't think. I think. Yeah. So just, yeah, so, just yeah, so, so let me help. At what you. point did it become just a language that doesn't really exist on Earth? Right. So the first thing is, it's quite the opposite. Uh, I, I base my theology on tongues one hundred percent on Scripture. My experience is quite secondary to that. And and by the way, for Jesus healing, the question is, does he ever refuse to heal? And, and that with Pulpit says that for sure he goes in and heals one and walks away. But does he ever refuse to heal? You don't think question. there were people around? him that said, oh, heal me too. I mean, who knows? But anyway, well, who I don't know. I want to but, take right. tongues. But, but who knows is the question. <laughs> who knows is the question. Therefore, yeah. we don't base the theology on who knows. So we don't need to go to a Strong's definition or anything. The, the word glossa is, is tongue or language, right? So just say speaking no, languages. No, that's not what it is. It says a particular people the, right, the, think for, from that. Why, why would we not go to Strong's? Because Strong's is a concordance. I don't want to insult you, but Strong's is a concordance. You don't go to a concordance. It's the dic- you never rely on the dictionary in the back of Strong's. Get an actual dictionary, the Greek lexicon, okay? Don't, okay. don't go. Strong's I, I, is a I concordance. I concede that. <laughs> right. Strong's is a concordance. So what does glossa mean then? Language, period. Language, okay? Just That's one word? Just, uh, Just language? Yeah, language, tongue. That's what it means. So when I say that he's okay. uh, speaking in many tongues, many languages, that's all. So we know what happened there in Acts 2. It doesn't tell us what happened in Acts 10 or in Acts 19, whether the languages were known or not. But Paul expands on it in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, is this right. the language of angels? Maybe. It's a possibility. But here's what he says. Pursue love, 1 Corinthians 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one 
understands him, but he utters, he utters mysteries in the spirit. All right. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And then you need someone who has a gift of interpretation. Paul doesn't say you need someone who knows the language, but someone who has that gift. All right. And, and then uh, he's, he's explaining elsewhere. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He said, but in, in the church, I would rather speak five words with your understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. And then he also refers to praying with his spirit and praying with his mind, right? Singing praise with his spirit or singing with his mind. So, and he says, if, if, if I give, if I pray with my spirit, uh, no one's going to understand. If I'm giving thanks with my spirit, nobody can say amen because they don't understand it. So it, that's what happens when we speak in tongues. It's our spirit speaking to God in a unique language. Fire we want, for fire we It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. And that is the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH. You've got questions, we've got answers. Live today, back from Korea. Yes, so Dave in Toledo, just to, to finish up, everything in 1 Corinthians 14 tells me that this is a language not understood by human beings, that we're praying with our spirit. He says his mind is unfruitful, so I'll pray with my spirit. I'll pray with my mind. He also references singing in the spirit, giving thanks in the spirit, but that we may be edified, but others aren't. Therefore, public usage, if I'm going to deliver a message, there has to be someone who can interpret, who has that gift, not someone who knows the language, because it says in 1 Corinthians 14 earlier, no one understands. We're speaking mysteries to God. So that's what I base it on. Now, that being said... I've heard foreign languages spoken many times, and it sounds like gibberish to me because I don't know the language. I've had people translating for me thinking that can't possibly be the language you're saying. Just because something sounds foreign <laughs> to us doesn't mean it's not a language. So Paul makes it clear. So, I mean, so, your, your issue is with 1 Corinthians 14, not with me. No, I yeah, I, I get that. I I'm not... So I'm not sure that, because I looked up in the break, and the Greek lexicon that I found said the exact same definition, but that's fine. We could differ on that, and you're the expert at that, so I'm just going to defer to you. Um, and I've heard that explanation before from you, but I, it just seems like what the apostles were given but at, let's, deal at let's deal with first Corinthians 14. Let's deal with, you correct. Correct. But it's the same God who inspires. It's the same God who inspired. That was his choice well, on that day. Why would it get changed? Because it's language. It's not. One was known languages, one was unknown languages, and there are different purposes. In other words, when I'm praying alone, why do I need to be proclaiming the, the praises of God in Arabic for a Muslim to hear in some other part of the world? I'm praying to God alone. That's the whole purpose. But really what you need to do, Dave, is what you, what you need to do is you need to take it up with 1 Corinthians 14 and the Lord. Because there he lays it out in detail and explicitly, all right? And by the way, some claim that the miracle was not the language, but that the miracle was that people heard, that it was a miracle of hearing. Because remember, the other people couldn't hear anything. They just thought they were, they were mocking, all right? But hey, keep listening, 
and read through 1 Corinthians 14 several times on your knees and ask God for insight and see if he'll give it to you. And then go back to speaking in tongues and praising God in tongues because you'll be edified as you do. And then you can edify and help others. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. And by the way, here, I'll just, just look at some different words for, for uh, glossa, tongue, all right? So a tongue or a language. So let's see, the Freiburg Analytical Greek, uh, so it can just mean tongue, physical tongue, all right? Uh, uh, by metonymy, tribe, people, and nation that speaks a common language. Uh, as a religious technical term for glossolalia, tongue speaking understood variously to be unintelligible ecstatic utterance, heavenly language, or foreign languages, though not learned, etc. cetera. Uh, so those are meanings there. Uh, low nida, semantic lexicon, tongue. Uh, okay, so just, all right. And so uh, again, it first means tongue. Right, so just tongue-like language. It's tongue-like, ah, tongue there. Uh, the Thayer Greek lexicon, the tongue, a member of the body, a tongue that is the language used by a particular people in distinction from that of other nations. So that's where you get, um, when you said Strong's, it was actually Thayer's there. Uh, or to speak with new tongues, which the speakers not learned previously, etc. So in, in any case, Tongue is like, it's exactly the same as our word tongue in English that I can talk about the physical tongue in my mouth or tongue meaning French or German or tongue meaning speaking in this divinely inspired language. 866-34-TRUTH. Our friend Isaac in Hollywood, Florida. Welcome back to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. It's a pleasure to speak again. Um, I have two questions, but I know a break is probably coming up. So if you don't have time, just whatever. Um, right. The first question is, the tradition that Jesus mentions at the beginning of Matthew chapter 15, is that present in the Talmud, or is this something that was only um, present in the first century? Really what I'm asking is, can a traditional Jew deny that such a tradition is accurate? Uh, yeah, so you have traditions that are referred to in the New Testament that were not in writing at that time, but are now written in the Mishnah or, or Tosefta, or other literature. For example, in John 9, why does Jesus turn dirt into mud and then tell the guy, put it on the guy's eyes and tell him to wash? Uh, why does he do that on the Sabbath? Well, we know from the Mishnah, which is recorded a couple hundred years later, that it was considered mm -hmm. work to turn dirt into mud, so kneading, right, K-N-E-A-D, mm -hmm. and, and then uh, to apply something medicinally in a non-emergency setting was considered work on the Sabbath. So Jesus would have broken two traditions, and, and that's why I believe he did it intentionally, to break a human tradition that was getting in the way of the meaning and purpose of the Sabbath, or, or to show that their traditions were more important in recognizing him as the Son of God. Uh, there are other things that we have from literature, saying the Dead Sea Scrolls, various debate about Sabbath laws in the document 4Q uh, uh, MMT, uh, things, things like that. Um, if I gave the right citation there. So uh, there, you may have something referenced in the New Testament that is not codified in later rabbinic tradition, but we have other Jewish traditions we know of. It could have been of the Essenes, could have been Sadducees, could have been another group, Therapeutia, others. Uh, but for the most part, the traditions that are referenced in the New Testament, you can then find later recorded in the Mishnah. So is this specific tradition, are you aware of whether it's codified in the Mishnah? So are you talking about the, the washing of hands? No, I'm sorry. The second one about the um, giving of the gift. 
to ah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I thought, yeah, so there, there is some debate. Sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. There, uh, that's what I thought you were referring to, hence the answer along those lines. Because the hand-washing, we, we know. And, you know, to this day, mm-hmm. there's, ritual, yeah. there's ritual hand-washing. There is some debate as to about exactly what Jesus was referring to when he talked about the sacrifice and saying it was, it was a, a korban, a gift from God, and therefore you didn't have to, to honor parents in a certain way, mm-hmm. uh, exactly what he was referring to. So if, if you look, for example, and I've just got it coming up on my screen here in a second, the simplest thing to do when you're looking up background questions like that, just if you had one source that you needed to go to, uh, you would go to Craig mm-hmm. Keener's Bible background commentary and uh, because he'll give you what debate, just in one source. I mean, there are plenty of full commentaries that will get into this in depth. So there's a debate as to exactly what it's referring to. Some would say it's reflected here, and others would question it. So it's, it's one of those debatable things in terms of exactly how it plays out. Some do believe there's evidence that says, yes, this is exactly what he's referring to, and others saying it was a tradition then. And remember, there's no use writing to, a, to an audience who's contemporary, Okay. Because you've mm-hmm. got it, you know, in Mark's gospel, the seventh chapter. So writing to an audience mm-hmm. that, you know, you're talking, you know, 30 years or so of, of the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that you're not going to create something, you know, like the American tradition of, of, of a chocolate pie that everyone eats on Mother's Day. It's like, what are you talking about? What tradition of chocolate pie? So that's, mm-hmm. that's why there is strong evidence to, you know, to believe these things. But uh, anyway, your second question real quick. Yes, so when the Bible calls a person righteous in the Old Testament, is that merely a relative goodness compared to everyone else, or does this mean that by believing in God's promises, God credits or impeaches the righteousness of Christ to them? Well, it's, it's both. In other words, it's not—the full imputation of the righteousness of Christ assumes something that obviously wouldn't be a thought of in the Old mm-hmm. Testament, but it is implying that this person trusts God. And that's the first and mm-hmm. foremost, that—, that a righteous person is someone who trusts God and then lives a life in reverence of this God. So when someone's called righteous, yeah, they're obviously not perfectly righteous. You know, even Ecclesiastes 7 says, there's not a righteous man on the earth who does what's right and doesn't sin. So there's no one perfectly mm-hmm. righteous. You know, Psalm, uh, Proverbs 20, who can say, I've, I've made my heart pure, I'm clean from sin. And yet there were people mm-hmm. that were called righteous. And we even know that Zechariah and Elizabeth, for example, in Luke 1, it says that they, they were righteous according to the law. They kept the commandments. Uh, Paul referred to mm-hmm. himself in Philippians 3, according to legalistic righteousness, faultless. But the, the short answer is, these were people who trusted God and lived lives that, that were, were godly lives, good lives. Obviously not perfectly good, obviously needing atonement, needing forgiveness, needing mercy, but righteous by faith and by conduct. Uh, you couldn't have one without the other. You wouldn't live a righteous life before God by conduct if you didn't believe him. If you believed him, you would live differently. So faith and, and obedience as two sides of the same coin. But certainly righteous, they, in other words, if someone's called righteous, they live differently than others. They, they turned mm-hmm. from evil. They did what was good. Why? Because they believed God and put their trust in him. Uh, the thing is, without an atonement system, you still fall short. So part of the trust mm-hmm. in God is trusting him for, for mercy and grace. All right. Hey, I appreciate the questions, Isaac. God bless you. 866-34-TRUTH. You know, one thing that's funny, if I'm correct, Isaac first reached out to us as a Jewish man seeking truth about the Messiah. And if I'm correct, having questions about the book of Exodus and and the historicity of, of the Exodus account. So being around 16 years old, 
so obviously this was some years ago, and uh, I can hear the change in voice. So bless you, Isaac. Uh, glad to be with you on your journey in these college years. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. As soon as we come back, we go straight to the phones. But thanks for praying for the trip to Korea. I did four meetings there and then had some private time over lunch and individual meetings with folks. Uh, I, I went because it was a Christian women's conference for Israel, although I expected 300 women, probably had about 1,000 people that were there in the most of the meetings. And uh, what blessed me, I, I went to thank the Korean church for supporting Israel in prayer and believing that God was going to deepen the connection for the salvation of the Jewish people. So we had graduation in our ministry school Sunday. My daughter Eliana graduates from high school tonight. It's a long trip. Korea is a long journey, but we made the trip there, Dylan and I, did the meetings, came back, and all is well. Straight to your phone calls in the sun break. Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, I, I want to make a special announcement. Welcome to our Friday broadcast. Phone lines are open. We're back from Korea Live, 866-34-TRUTH. Special announcement. My book, Jezebel's War with America, perhaps the most intense book I've ever written, comes out August 6th. Now, we will be doing a, a special signed numbered copy offered through our ministry with a special bonus coming with that. But those of you who'd like to take advantage of a sensational offer, I've never seen anything in all my years of publishing books, all right, writing books, go to Jezebel'sWarWithAmerica.com. Jezebel'sWarWithAmerica.com. So obviously no apostrophe, just B-E-L-S. Jezebel'sWarWithAmerica.com. When you pre-order the hardcover, coming out in hardcover and then and then uh, audible book and an ebook when you pre-order the hardcover uh and and you do that at, at amazon barnes and noble christian book there are different links there wherever you you do your ordering then you write in with your proof of purchase when you do you get the first three chapters immediately on pdf so you can start reading immediately but you will also get the day the book comes out the ebook free as well so it's two for the price of one but hang on you also get the ebook for playing with holy fire. My wake-up call to the Charismatic Pentecostal Church. You get that ebook free as well, plus links to audio and video messages. It's over fifty dollars of bonus material. Yeah, I, I'm just looking at the list here. I was stunned when the publisher said they wanted to do this. So take advantage of it. Pre-order now. You got to do it before it comes out in August. But it j- just came up. So we're Jezebel'sWarWithAmerica.com. You find out more there. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Jeremy. All right. We won't go to Jeremy. Let's go to TJ in Kansas City, Missouri. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you for taking my call. You're very welcome. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on a theory that I've heard. And um, so I don't agree with the Hebrew-Israelite movement belief um, that mm-hmm. black people are the Jews or anything. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, um, I think many people uh, cling to that belief because 
they're looking for an explanation for the injustices that we've endured, but I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so the theory I've heard is that um, African people or black people are from the lineage of Ham, and the things that we've suffered are as a result of the sin and the curse that was placed on his son, I guess. I think it was Canaan, maybe. But so I wanted to know if you've heard that theory and if your thoughts were on it or what your yeah. thoughts were on. Yeah, so so TJ, first let me say that when I confronted uh, the black Hebrew Israelites on the streets of New York City many years ago in the early 90s, I was doing an outreach for Times Square Church that Saturday night. I was We were walking on the streets of the city, a Jewish friend of mine, another believer. And um, anyway... They were there on the street. The first time I ever encountered them with a PA system, you know, shouting out their ugly rhetoric, and I ended up confronting them. I, I failed to calculate. I was the only white person in the crowd because once I, I started, they started ch- everybody started chanting "Death to America, Death to the White Man." I didn't realize I was the only white guy there. What I told them was that, that that blacks and Jews had a connection that we were both freed slaves, and there was a both we both had a special kind of soul and character, and that that we needed each other rather than creating this hostility, we needed each other and that Jesus preached a religion of love and they were preaching a religion of hate. But um, the idea that blacks are the cursed descendants of Canaan was an idea that was used by white slave owners in America, professing Christians who use this to justify the oppression of black people. So it's, it's really a misuse of scripture and it's something that is very ugly and should not be perpetuated because it it gives an impression that blacks or Africans have rightly been enslaved because of a curse that was put on them. And so that that's ugly. It's not historically correct and it, and it should be rejected. The Canaanites are, are not connected to the African people and there's no possible justification for enslaving other people's period. So, uh, no, I, I, I do not accept that. And, and you should know, again, the history is, is of, of using that interpretation from Genesis 9 has been a very negative history. It's been one that's been used to enslave and oppress people. But I, I appreciate you calling with the question, TJ, very much. Thank you. You're welcome. 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, just quick update. Um, I was asked in the first half hour about the movie The Moses Controversy, and the idea that the proto-Sinai inscriptions in Egypt actually in, found in mines in Egypt actually are proto-Hebrew and that, that it would point back to the antiquity of Hebrew as a Semitic language. So it's, it's mainly uh, Dr. Douglas Petrovich who's associated with that theory as a Semitic scholar. Um, in fact, uh, there's, there's a review by Alan Millard Alan, Middle, Alan Millard is, is a Christian scholar and, and one of the top Christian Semitic scholars, a Syriologist. And uh, there's an, so if you look up Alan Millard, M-A-M-I-L-L-A-R-D, and Douglas Petrovich, P-E-T-R-O-B-I-C-H, uh, he has a very, very strong critique of Petrovich's position. So just to let you know, he's, he's writing this as a Christian and as a Semitic scholar. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let us, all right, let's try to reconnect with Jeremy in Baton Rouge. If we lost you, I think we got you back. Welcome to the broadcast. No, yeah. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much. Uh, my, my question 
is really in regard to um, a, a perspective on the filling of the Holy Spirit, a second uh, filling. Uh, of course, Paul says in First uh, Corinthians, uh, I think twelve thirteen, you know. Once we believe, we have the Spirit of God is dwelling within us. And, you know, typical charismatic uh, understanding of, you know, Acts 2 and the promise of the Father that we would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit as something separate. So my question is Wayne Grudem, and I believe John Frame and their systematic theologies, they um, they kind of argue against that one, of course, the Presbyterian and Baptist traditions. Um, and, and, and one of the things that they cite, is that a quote second filling is would create a kind of second class or subpar Christian experience or Christian? Um, and I'm just curious of your, uh, you know, your, your view on that or what your uh, perspective is on yeah. that and what your understanding is on the actual baptism of the Holy Spirit because I see them as two separate. Um, yeah. encounters with God in Ephesians 5.18. Anyway, just right. curious what you would say. Sure. So 1 Corinthians 12 doesn't say that upon salvation you're indwelt by the Spirit, but rather that by one Spirit we're baptized in, into the body of Christ, body of Messiah. That being said, 1 Corinthians 6 does tell us that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and therefore I believe that every child of God, the moment they're born again, they are indwelt by the Spirit. Hence Romans 8.16, the the the, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The question is, yeah. is there a subsequent empowering? Is there a clothing with the spirit? Is that pointed to in Acts 8 that you had the believers in Samaria saved, but they hadn't received the spirit yet until hands were laid on them, and that there was a notion that there would be a clear reception of the spirit? That, first, that Acts 19, Paul asked the, the believers he meets from Ephesus, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed or since you believed, indicating that there was yeah. some reception of the Spirit? So uh, my own experience was at, at, saved in a Pentecostal church that I knew I was saved, born again, child of God, as, as saved as anybody else on the planet, uh, and yet not uh, having received the empowerment of the Spirit in the supernatural way, which then came some weeks later, and I, and I first spoke in tongues January 24th, 72, and that was the outward sign of that empowerment. And then i grown praying in tongues and in communion with God uh, in the experience and, and demonstration of that power. Sam Storms has a new book out on tongues and I wrote an endorsement for it. It's a great book, answers the major questions, but he would differ with me there. I wrote the endorsement because it's a great book and here's an area where we can differ. Uh, so Wayne Gruden believes in speaking in tongues and, and the gifts of the spirit for today. But my understanding is that there is a subsequent empowerment. Now, here's the thing. You could say that it could lead to someone saying that, that, well, you're experiencing something I'm not. But that doesn't make one second class. That means that there's more to have in God. For example, not everyone is called to leadership. Some are called to lead, and others are called to be in submission to, to those leaders in, in a healthy way. That doesn't mean that one is more saved than the other or one is higher than the other. It's just various functions and, and gifts. And okay. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 12 that, it's sometimes the more important parts of the body are the ones that, that are hidden and that we take better care of. So uh, I, I do see a subsequent empowering. I see Luke 11 telling us to ask for the Holy Spirit. Why are we asking for the Holy Spirit if, if it's automatic upon salvation? So I do see a subsequent empowering, and, and 
Therefore, even though we're equally saved and equally children of God, there's always more that God is offering us. Can I, can I just ask one, one more thing in follow-up? Yeah, um, go ahead. What, what, what someone has asked me in, in conversations with a cessationist, essentially, is the argument that comes back is, no, 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 I understand you're arguing from experience, which I don't think I am, but then they're saying, no, once you're saved, you have all of God. There's really nothing else to be added to. And I'm, you know, then I'm pointing back to Ephesians 5.18, so I'm just curious. Well, the Ephesians you know, 5.18, saying, be, be filled with the Spirit, uh, is an ongoing thing. In other words, I know. Right. Uh, yes, it could be talking about uh, a first empowerment experience, but it seems to be talking about in an ongoing way that we should be live a life live a life that is being filled with the Spirit. But I I look at not experience first, Scripture first. So I see the disciples are saved men, but they haven't received the empowerment of the Spirit. Luke twenty four forty nine Acts one eight, all right until Acts the second chapter, and then I see in Acts eight. He said, well, they were Samaritans and the apostles had to sanction their salvation. Who said so? Philip preached to them and they were saved. God sanctioned them by giving them new hearts. God sanctioned them by, by giving them new life, forgiving their sins. But they had not yet received the Spirit. There was obviously something tangible about receiving the Spirit. And then, and then Simon the sorcerer sees that through the laying on of hands, the Spirit was given. Something tangible happened. All right? And then again in Acts 19, so I, I would point to the pattern in the book of Acts and then say it's interesting that beginning again in the mid-1800s as the Holy Spirit was poured out in India and different places that people were seeking empowerment. They knew there was more. And you even have the lives of Finney and the lives of Moody without tongues, but they, they talked about the need for empowerment and they sought God early, earnestly. Many Christians through the centuries have talked about the need for greater spiritual empowerment. They've cried out and they've received it. Hey, thank you for the call. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us. You've got questions. We've got answers live and back from Korea. Hey, how would you like to make a difference in potentially literally millions of lives? Literally millions of lives for just pennies a day, like 30 cents a day. Really, seriously. Here's what you do. Take a minute and go to Patreon. Dot com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com, forward slash Ask Dr. Brown. That's forward slash A-S-K-D-R Brown. Become a Patreon partner, $10 or more per month. You enable us to put out more and more cutting-edge videos, media material, from our Consider This videos to this very broadcast, to our YouTube chats, to bonus shows, to whole documentaries we want to do, exposing all kinds of error in the body. We're not afraid to tackle it. I'm, I'm, called, I'm called to... Think of my head as like the tip of a battering ram and think of your arms, all of you running with that battering ram to take down walls of lies and deceit and ungodliness. We'll do it. I'm called to, to be that tip of the battering ram, but we do it with your help and support. So $10 or more per month, not only are you enabling us to touch literally millions of people that we reach every week through social media and internet and writing and books and, and speaking, not only that, but, but, You'll be blessed by the Lord. The smile of the Lord is on you for doing that. And 
we bless you back with exclusive things that you get to watch our YouTube chat that we do at least one a week answering YouTube questions. Those are archived privately afterwards, but you get to watch on Patreon as a supporter bonus shows that we put out each week with, with key teaching on really edifying issues you get to watch. So we've got our first 70 Patreon supporters. Why don't you join our team today? Would you do that? Hopefully you can afford pennies a day to help us reach millions. All right. Let us go to the phones in Destin, Florida. Jacob, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, good afternoon. Um, so I was studying baptism and, uh, you know, kind of why we do it and, and just trying to put aside, like always, uh, you know, whatever I've been told in the past. And I came across First uh, Peter 3, and just over the week I've been digging into some of the Psalms, uh, Psalm 22, 68, 69, a bunch of different things. And <clears throat> um, it, first of all, I guess I'd like to, to get your opinion on, on what exactly um, – do you think uh, happened uh, with this whole proclaiming to the imprisoned spirits? But it seems to me like at least the early church had it figured out that um, our baptism, uh, Romans 6 and some other things that alluded to it, that it is a symbol of uh, us having victory over death and hell, just like Jesus did. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I don't think for one second that he was just um, <clears throat> laying asleep in the grave. So can you give me some insight into your opinion on yeah, kind of sure what thing. happened? And, and, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great questions, Jacob. Thank you. So number one, we do share in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we now participate with him as he died once and for all we die. So we die to sin symbolically through going down in the water. All right. So it is a death to sin. And now we live a new life in Jesus. So he died for our sins, but put them to death at the cross. So there is a dying to sin and a rising up. And with that, a dying to the power of sin and a rising up in new life so that in Jesus, we can appropriate victory over sin. We do not have to be slaves to sin. Now, 1 Peter 3 tells us, it doesn't say that he evangelized. It doesn't use the Greek word for preach the gospel. Rather, he preached, he made declaration to the spirits in prison. So what happens is, after Jesus' death on the cross, he descends into the netherworld. And, and, you know, the Apostles' Creed descending to hell, right? He descends into the netherworld and proclaims his victory over the spirits that disobeyed in Noah's day. So the angels that fell, that disobeyed in Noah's day, they were kept in chains in prison and he declares in the netherworld, I am he. I, I have the keys of hell and death. I have triumphed. And then he rises from the dead and makes a public demonstration over all the demonic powers of darkness, Satan and his minions, etc. So, yeah, the more we understand his victory and his, his dying and then descending into the netherworld and declaring his victory and then his ascending into heaven, think every Every demonic power, all the forces of Satan must have been arrayed at that moment to stop the resurrection, and they couldn't. The same Holy Spirit that raised him up raises us up in Jesus. Yeah, absolutely, amazingly, praise God. So, yes, Jacob, we share in that victory over over sin, over death in that sense. Obviously, we physically die, but we've already been given eternal life. Much appreciated. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Kevin. All right. Going to Kevin. Uh, let's go to CJ. Whoa, they're dropping like flies. 
hey, call now. I mean, maybe we'll get a chance to get your call. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Stephen in Dallas, Texas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. I love your show, man. I, my, my question is, uh, on the day of Pentecost, um, I've not heard you speak about it, and I'm sure you have a million times. I, I, was, I was curious. Um, on the day of Pentecost, the, the disciples, um, the Holy Spirit fell on them and began speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. The crowd of people outside were hearing this. Do you believe um, that they were hearing foreign languages and not some sort of mindless jibber-jabber sort of, you know, because you got some people... My brother goes to a charismatic church, and I wouldn't classify myself that way, but I do believe the Bible talks about speaking in tongues, and I, I just don't know enough about it. Um, yeah, but so, on the day of Pentecost... Okay. Yeah, so so first thing, in fact, we just dealt with this in a caller in, in the, the first half hour of, of the show, so if you're listening on radio in Dallas, you, you get the second half hour. So, uh, oh, no, number goodness. one, uh, at Pentecost in Acts 2, either... The disciples were speaking new languages that they'd never spoken, right? So some are speaking Arabic and some are speaking, you know, whatever other languages, you know, Farsi or whatever other languages are represented. Um, That's the most logical. Or the people, they were just speaking a heavenly tongue and the people supernaturally heard their own languages. But more more likely, because remember, half the crowd, they they think, what are you talking, what is this? You're drunk. All they they hear is nonsense. Uh, so it could have been everybody speaking at the same time. They just heard nonsense. Or it could be that the miracle was in the hearing, not in the speaking. But let's assume it was uh, in the speaking. All right. Yeah. But you can debate it. Right. Okay. Maybe the miracle was in the hearing. Sure. Some some teachers believe that. But let's say it was in the right. speaking because they, you know, they, they speak in these languages. Elsewhere in First Corinthians 14, when Paul talks about speaking in tongues and prayer and worship, he says, no one understands yeah. you. You're speaking mysteries to God and no one can understand, which is why I'm on radio now speaking in English, not in tongues. I may have been <laughs> yes, speaking right. in tongues as I was driving up in my car, but I'm speaking in English now. If I was going to speak in tongues, it doesn't help you or help anyone on the earth unless there's interpretation with it. The one thing I would just say right. is you don't want to call it mindless jibber jabber because it may just be that it sounds different to you. I mentioned to the call in the first half hour uh, to Dave that many a time I've been overseas speaking and heard someone translate. And I think that can't, that's not a language. What do you say? Those aren't actual words. That doesn't sound like sentence structure, but it is. It's just foreign to me. In fact, Paul said that people think we're barbarians. That's the, from, from a literal translation of the Greek, just foreigners, in other words, because it sounds like you're saying bar, bar, bar. They, they don't understand it. So foreign languages often sound like us to gibber, sound to, to us like gibberish. One thing that's amazing is when I'm praying in tongues for extended period of times, it sounds like a language I'm praying. It sounds like sentences and so on words. All right. But thank you, Stephen, for the call. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Atham in St. Louis. Welcome to the line of fire. Am I on? Hello. Am I on? You're on the air. Awesome. My question is about the Sabbath. And I was reading the Westminster Confession, and it said that the Sabbath has been moved to Sunday for the Christian Sabbath. Um, I'm mostly just curious on your thoughts about that, and should we keep the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments and 
Yeah. So, so we all obviously, Ethan, we agree on, on nine of the 10 commandments that we all keep them, that we don't commit adultery. We don't steal. We honor our parents. We, we don't make idols. We agree on that as followers of Jesus. The question is the Sabbath. Let me say categorically that I differ with the Westminster confession, which really is following Catholic tradition to say that the Sabbath was moved to Sunday. There's not a stitch of evidence for that in the new Testament. And even the idea of Sabbath rest in the ancient Roman world was really not known the way it was known in Israel. It's not until the fourth century that there's a a formal statement made that the Sabbath is now Sunday. Now, let me say this. I don't believe that God gave the seventh day Sabbath in a binding way to the church as a whole. It was a sign that he gave to Israel and that we first and foremost experience Sabbath rest in Jesus, in Yeshua. That's, that's the first thing, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, come to me and find rest. Now, the question, should you keep a seventh-day Sabbath, or should Sunday be a, a Sabbath day? Because early on, it, Christians definitely gathered to worship, either before work or after work on a Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection. There's good documentation from that from within the first century of the church, but there's not documentation anywhere in the New Testament or in the earliest church that they considered this the new Sabbath that was a later move in the fourth century and one that I personally reject. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't attend church on a Sunday or that I don't set that aside as a day of rest if that's my one day when I'm not preaching or ministering. But I would point you to Romans 14 to work this out between you and God. The seventh-day Sabbath has not been given as a New Testament command, but it's certainly something that someone may want to enter into or have as a different day of the week, according to Romans 14. So I have no problem with Christians setting aside Sunday as a Sabbath. Don't make it a decree. Remember, join us, patreon.com forward slash ask Dr. Brown.